Okay, well, good evening once again, guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 32? Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, as chapter 32 opens up, Moses has been up on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights receiving God's law. And while he's gone, the people have grown restless. And so they uh, want Aaron to make them not gods, plural, uh, in the sense that they're turning to other gods to worship. The Hebrew word is Elohim, and it is plural here. Elohim, anytime you have an I-M at the end of a word in Hebrew, it's plural. So the word Elohim is plural, and when not used of the Lord God Almighty, but speaking just of pagan gods, it would be correct to translate it God's plural. But when Elohim is used in relation to the one and only true and living God, uh, as it is used in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Whenever it's used of our God, the true God, an Elohim is always singular. And it's an interesting phenomenon that, that takes place. We'll see it all the way in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You see Elohim, plural, coupled with a singular verb. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Grammatically incorrect, but the Holy Spirit did it that way to communicate three gods in one. Uh, right up front, we get uh, insight into the Trinity. So here... What is going on is, uh, it's not that the people want Aaron to make them, you know, statues or images of other gods. They want him to make them a visible representation of God Almighty to worship and then use to then bring them into the promised land. Because Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. He's dead for all we know. What they're thinking, okay? How quickly they forget. Verse 2, and Aaron said to them, break off. What a leader this guy is, okay? He doesn't even fight him. Oh, God forbid we should do this. No, to break off your earrings, you know, which are in your ears. These no doubt came from the Egyptians. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians when they left Egypt. They asked them for gold and silver and all. Well, these earrings, from what I understand, were used as a um, pagan symbols. What are the people doing with them? Put them right in their ear and, you know, looking like the Egyptians, Okay. What is it with the people of God? We want to always look like the world in some way, you know? Dress like the world, talk like the world. We're supposed to be setting the pace, right? But anyways, break off the golden earrings that are in your ears. Uh, at least that he didn't say break them off in your eyes and in your tongues. And I mean, at least they had them in the ears. They, were, they knew what earrings were, all right? But, uh, you know, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is the feast to Yahweh the Lord, okay? Whenever you see all capital letters for Lord, it's the name Yahweh, okay? Jehovah, right? But once again, guys, this calf was not another God to them. It was a visible representation of the Lord God of Israel. Understand that, very important. Aaron wasn't leading the people into idolatry through the worship of other gods, but he was leading them into idolatry the idolatry of false worship, worshiping the true God the wrong way, is the idea. This was in direct violation of the second commandment. You say, well, but he's not come down from the mountain yet. How can God hold them accountable when Moses is still up in the mountain getting the commandments? If you remember in chapter 20, God spoke audibly from Mount Sinai while Moses was still down at the base. And remember, he's blasting out these commandments, Exodus 20. The people were so terrified at the voice of God, they said, no, 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 don't let God speak to us any longer directly. You go up there and talk to him, and then you come down. So he had already given them, at very least, the Ten Commandments. They all knew these commandments, okay? And the second of the ten 
God said to them in uh, chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we talked about that in detail when we were in chapter 20. So if you weren't here, go online. You can access the teaching. Why was God so adamant about them not uh, making anything, a likeness of anything in heaven, on the earth, in the seas, under the earth, to represent him? Because God is an omnipotent spirit. His presence fills the universe. So whatever you reduce him to in the way of an image, like a calf or whatever, that's not who he is. He's an omnipresent spirit. Therefore, whatever you reduce him to in the way of an image makes him a lesser God. Therefore, it's a false representation, and therefore, it's idolatry. God didn't want his people thinking of him in those terms. And it's very sad to me, whenever a person has to make something visible, has to have something visible to kind of connect with and relate to, uh, you know, in their relationship with God, because to me it always says that their walk with God is not all that it should be. Because really, if you understand God, and we'll never understand Him this side of glory and all of His fullness, but at least we should have a working understanding that, you know what, He is so vast and so big, everywhere I go He's there. What do I need a statue in my car? to represent him, or a crucifix, or whatever. Everywhere I go, he is there. So Israel here, obviously, they're not very old in the Lord. We'll cut them some slack on that level. However, God did say to them, don't reduce me to an image. And here, they go right ahead and do the very thing God had forbidden. Although, you know, I do see a little bit of Egyptian idolatry in this as well, though. All right? If you study Egyptian culture, you will find out that they did, one of the gods they worshipped, and they worshipped many, was Apis, the, uh, the Egyptian bull god. I, I do kind of feel that a little bit of the Egyptian idolatry, it has seeped in a little bit. I mean, you could have used anything to represent God. Why a bull? Probably because they maybe had worshipped Apis in Egypt uh, when they were there. But uh, one, one commentator said, and I quote, Calf is not a good translation of the Hebrew edel. A young bull in its first strength is meant. For instance, the word can describe a three-year-old animal, as in Genesis 15, verse 9. So it was a golden bull. And again, probably Apis, okay, that they were using now to represent God. Uh, verse 6, it says, Then they rose early in, on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This verse I think describes exactly the attitude of so many so-called worshipers, quote-unquote, in America. They come to church on Sunday to worship God, but then they eat, drink, and rise up to play the rest of the week. They live immorally. One pastor said, this is a tasteful way to speak of gross immorality among the people of Israel. Their worship included eating and drinking in the sense of drunkenness, and sexual immorality, end quote. Um, Hebrew scholars confirm that the verb here translated play, sehek, signifies, and I'm quoting them, drunken, immoral orgies and sex play, end quote. This is pretty lewd. It's pretty bad, okay? I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that so soon, after having been delivered out of Egypt by the Lord God Almighty with a powerful and outstretched arm, being brought to the base of this very mountain where God proposed this covenant of fidelity, this deep relationship. I want to be your God. I want to be exclusive with you. And Israel said, yes, we want you to be our God. All right. After having entered into this beautiful covenant, it's hard for us to imagine that the people of Israel would fall so quickly and so completely into this kind of gross immorality. It proves how unfaithful God's people can be at times. Even after he's just been so good to us, uh, done so much for us, you know. It's amazing how quickly we will run after the flesh if given the chance. The flesh is a powerful thing. 
Every other enemy is outside our body. The flesh is in our body. Uh, it goes with us wherever we go. Uh, medieval monks tried to uh, get away from the world in monasteries, locking themselves up in rooms where they can pray and be away from the world, thinking that would make them holy, not realizing initially that they were bringing their worst enemy right in with them, their flesh. They eventually figured that out. Um, but the flesh is a powerful, powerful enemy, and the only way to defeat it is to keep drawing close to God every day and just keep you know, praying, Lord, live your life through me. I can't, but you can do all things. See? Now, what was God's response to this horrific scene? Well, verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." And Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? you catch that little interplay there? At this moment, God passes these people off to Moses. Now, Moses, your people that you brought out of Egypt, they messed up big time. Moses says, don't lay these folks on me. They're your people, Lord. You brought them out of Egypt. Later on, Moses would say, these aren't my kids. I didn't give birth to all these people. They're your kids, Lord, basically, all right? little sanctified interplay there. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them? You know, Lord, if you kill them now, the Egyptians, you'll never get glory. The Egyptians will say that you couldn't finish what you started. That he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the, from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from the harm, uh, from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, J and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever." So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Interesting passage. It sounds as if God has lost his temper and Moses is trying to cool him down. Doesn't it? Here's the problem that we often run into when we read the Bible. Here's the problem. The Bible is trying to use human terms to describe how God works or conducts himself at times in the affairs of his people. It's for our benefit, okay, that we can more fully grasp what's going on. But sometimes it's just confusing because it's like, well, wait a minute. Now, God lost his temper and Moses is calming him down? Uh, it doesn't sound right. And, and it isn't really what's going on. In fact, in the, the King James Version translates verses 12 and 14 this way. Uh, wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent. Talking to God. Lord, you got to repent of this evil against thy people. Verse 14. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do undo his people. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? God but you know what? Obviously, that's not what's going on because other passages would passages contradict that idea. All right, Numbers twenty-three, verse nineteen: God is not a man that he should lie; neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? First Samuel fifteen twenty-nine says. And also the strength of Israel, capital, another title for God. Also, let's just say the God of Israel 
will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. The word repent, guys, as we know, especially in the New Testament, means have a change of mind. A change of mind about the direction your life is going, you know. Uh, we talk about a person repenting and coming to Christ. Well, their life is going away from God. Uh, you know, they're, they're on a road moving away from God. God gets a hold of their heart. They, they repent. They turn around and start moving towards God. So they, it's a course change, okay? A change of mind leading to a change of direction. It could also uh, be used uh, of a decision that's been made that you reconsider or think better of. Uh, no, this is not a good thing to do. Whatever, I'm going to change my mind with this, okay? Uh, but both of those concepts are impossible when it comes to God because God never changes his mind because his ways are always perfect to begin with. So God never repents because repentance means to have a change of mind, to do something different because you made a mistake, we'll say. Can't attribute those things to God. God never makes a mistake. His ways are always perfect. There's nothing for him to change his mind about. So then what does it mean in the Old Testament, especially as we're looking at this in the Old Testament, what does it mean when it says God repented? It means that he changed course with regard to his will for our lives. He changed course with regard to his will for our lives. God has a perfect will for all of our lives. But if we sin, if we disobey him, he can't do his perfect will anymore. Now he's got to adjust his will, change what he wanted to do to accommodate our free will in doing what we wanted to do, which in this case would be to disobey what God has said. So God is changing, but it's only because we have not allowed him to do his very best in our lives. And he grieves over that. In fact, the Hebrew word for repent or relent in the, these verses is a Hebrew word that means to be sorrowful or to grieve. And certainly we can cause God to grieve. The Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By not obeying God, by doing our own thing. God has a plan for our life. It's perfect if we will just follow him and obey him. God will pour upon us all the blessings he wants to pour upon our lives. If we disobey him, it's not that he stops loving us, but he's got to adjust his will for our lives so that, you know, it now takes into consideration the path we have chosen to walk, he never forsakes us if we're his people, but uh, he do, it does require a change, of course, now. Give you an example, all right, right here in Exodus, we're in, in the, up and through Deuteronomy. You, you see how that God had a plan for Israel, perfect plan. Bring them out of Egypt, bring them into the wilderness for a time until they could build the tabernacle and sanctify the priesthood. It was probably about 11 months God had in mind for them to be in the wilderness. And then his perfect plan was to bring them right into the promised land. Well, is that how things worked out? No. Because, not because God changed his mind and thought, well, no, that's not really a good plan on my part. No, Israel, he brought them to the border of the promised land. Uh, and uh, Moses sent in the 12 spies. Of course, you remember the story. Ten of them brought an evil report. There are giants in the land. We can't go up against these people. We'll get slaughtered. No way are we, should we go into the promised land. And Joshua, Caleb, two of the spies brought back a good report. Yeah, they're big. They're giants, but God's with us. He's promised us victory. But the people listened to the ten evil spies and would not go into the promised land. So therefore, God had to change from his perfect will to what we'll call maybe his permissive will. It was a, a different course. This time, they would wander now in the wilderness for 40 years, roughly, until the adult generation died out, and then their children would enter into the promised land. Now, stay with me, because here's where it gets a little tricky. God knew what they were going to do and incorporated it into his overall plan for Israel. Look, and I don't want to confuse you, our disobedience, you see, some people have a problem with that concept that I just shared with you. Because it sounds like we're saying God is always responding to me. Man's in control. And God's always having to respond to me because my, you know, my uh, sovereign free will. You know, he's always kind of having to respond. No, God is sovereign. God knows everything, okay? And uh, our disobedience never thwarts the plans of God because he always knows what we're going to do. 
And yes, he lays out the perfect will, knowing we will never attain to the perfect will. So he then, his ultimate plan incorporates our weaknesses, our rebellion at times, our disobedience. So that the, at the end of the road, we're exactly where God wanted us to be all along. You see, and I don't want you to get the impression that God is always having to adjust his will on the fly because he doesn't know what we're going to do. There's a theology out there uh, that, uh, that basically teaches that. God doesn't know the future. So he's got to kind of study us and, you know, he's got a plan, but, you know, he's got to keep adjusting it according to what we do because he doesn't know, doesn't know ahead of time. That's wrong. Okay. Known from the beginning are all his works. He already knows from the foundation of the world, he knew everything he was going to do and every person would ever live and how they would respond in any given situation. And he wove it all into his ultimate plan so that Judas could betray Christ of his own free will. And yet the whole thing worked out exactly the way God wanted it to. See, and it's hard to communicate that in a few sentences in Scripture, isn't it? There's a whole theology that's involved here, you know, and God's trying his best to... Uh, to communicate to us in terms we understand what is kind of going on, but we read this and sometimes we're baffled. What do you mean God changed? God can't change. He's perfect. God is perfect. And he's not changing what he wants to do. He's just changing the way he leads our life because of what we have chosen to do and so on. So God never repents in the sense that he changes his mind. But again, he does make adjustments, adjustments to his will for our lives whether those adjustments include blessing us for obedience, if we were living in disobedience and now we've changed and now we obey him now, instead of judgment he brings blessing, or if you know we're walking in obedience but then, and he's blessing and then, but we start getting into sin, then of course he can't bless us. I'll give you a good uh, few verses. Turn to Jeremiah 18. I'll show you what I mean. Jeremiah 18. I think this is a perfect passage to illustrate what we're talking about. Jeremiah 18, starting with verse 7. God said, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, to bless it in other words, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So here God is adjusting what he is going to do based on what man chooses. That doesn't put man in the driver's seat. It just means that God already knew what we were going to do. Uh, and it never thwarts his ultimate plans. He's got it worked out, okay? But he does let us know that, look, you have a free will, and if you will exercise it to obey me, then I can bless you all that I want to bless you. But if you choose to disobey me, then I will choose to, you know, what I want to do is bless. God always wants to bless his people. But what he has to do sometimes is chase them. And with a nation... It might even mean bring judgment. A nation like America that he once blessed, but a nation who has now turned its back on God like Israel did so many years ago, and now God relents of all the good and begins to now bring the judgment. Again, one last time. Our rebellion never hinders God from doing what he has determined. What he has determined will come to pass, but our disobedience always grieves his heart because he wants to receive glory from our lives and in the process he wants to bless us in the fullest way possible and he can't do that if we are disobedient and uh, walking in sin so first of all from the passage it seems that god you know again lost his temper and moses is trying to cool him down that's wrong that's not what's going on god had no intention of wiping out his people he wanted moses to intercede on behalf of the nation. It was God that put it into Moses' heart uh, to intercede for these people. All true prayer and intercession, guys, starts in the heart with the will of God. Symbolically, we always have to look at these things symbolically. How do they point to Christ? Well, symbolically, we have a picture of Christ here 
who is our deliverer. Moses now is a type of Christ who God used to deliver Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Of course, he's a type of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who delivered us out of the bondage of the world, sin and death, and so on, right? And um, Moses here is a picture of Christ interceding on behalf of his people in the new covenant when we sin to assuage God's wrath. And I know it sounds as though, and you read this, and you go, oh, no, wait a minute, it doesn't sound like that, though. I know it sounds as though, through logic and reason, Moses, the cool, calm, collected one, is persuading God, the hothead, from doing what he really wants to do, which is to wipe these people out. Uh, but that would put man, listen, that would put man into a position where he can control God, right, through prayer. That is absolutely foreign to the pages of Scripture. Prayer is never designed by God for us to control Him. A lot of people have a concept of prayer that says, basically, if I can just lay out the facts, okay, in such a way that I can persuade God to see it my way, then I can, you know, He'll respond and give me what I want. That is not biblical prayer, all right? Uh, we've already looked at these two scriptures. You don't have to turn to them. I'll just read them, of course. The model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples to pray. At one point, they were to pray, Your will be done uh, on earth even as it is in heaven. God has a will that he has determined in heaven, and he doesn't need us to change his mind or give him some, you know, Well, Lord, this is really a better plan I've got if you just listen to me. He wants us to be channels through which he can bring his will, perfect will, to the earth. All right? And of course, 1 John 5 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we shall have the petitions we have asked of him. So it looks one way, but obviously something else is going on. And this was really all about God teaching Moses to be a leader. That's really what it was about. All right, God teaching Moses to be a leader. As one commentator correctly points out, and I quote, he said, in leadership, the difficult experiences with our people either make us or break us, and Moses was about to be tested. God called Israel your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, as though the Lord were abandoning the nation of Moses. But Moses soon reminded him that they were his people and that he had delivered them. He, God, had delivered them. Furthermore, God had made a covenant with their forefathers to bless them, multiply them, and to give them the promised land. Moses intended to hold God to his word, and that's what God wanted him to do, unquote. I think the Lord loves it when we recite his promises back to him. Now, Lord, you promised that you were going to provide our needs. I'm without a job, and I need rent. I, we need food. Lord, you prom you know, we're not really reminding God of what he said. We're basically reminding ourselves. Here's what we're really saying we do this. Lord, you gave me a promise, and I know you are so faithful, you would never break your word. I'm just going to repeat it back to you, Lord. You know what it is. And I'm going to do it because I just trust that you are going to come through. God loves that because it's expressing our trust in him. Well, verse 15, And Moses turned and went, from, went down from the mountain, uh, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. Uh, on the one side and on the other, they were written. How many realize that the Ten Commandments were actually written on both sides of these stone tablets? Of course, we don't see that in Sunday school pictures because you can't look behind it. I mean, They've got to write it all on one side. But um, here it says that the Ten Commandments were written on both sides. We learn later with the finger of God they were written. But why both sides? Well, probably to keep the tablets small enough for Moses to carry, right? I mean, this was the first compact Bible in the history of man. <laughs> but these tablets were stone. They had to be small enough for Moses to be able to carry them, correct? One commentator suggested that God writing these Ten Commandments on both sides of these stone tablets meant he wrote using large letters. He did it so large that it left no space for additions. God doesn't want us adding to his word, okay? He knows what he wants to say. You know, God doesn't want us reading the word and going, oh, but Lord, here's an 11th commandment I just thought of. It's a good one, you know? Yeah. Guys, 
get your hands off my word, okay? What I've written, I've written, right? Verse 16, now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Again, later on we read with the finger of God. Verse 17, and when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Now, as we go back earlier, we realize what happened was that Moses, Moses and Joshua started up the mount. Uh, somewhere maybe around the halfway point, Joshua stops. Moses goes all the way up to the top of the mount to talk with God, get the remaining laws of God. And Joshua is hanging out there for the 40 days and 40 nights as well, waiting for Moses to come down. Very faithful man. Uh, Joshua didn't become restless or impatient. Moses said, wait here. I'm going to go up and talk to the Lord and and come back down again. And Joshua figured, hey, those are my orders. And until Moses, my leader, says anything different, I'm going to stay put. Um, Again, when Jesus gives us orders, Moses, again, being a type of Christ, until he changes those orders, we are to operate uh, under those orders. Okay? So here comes Moses down from the mount, meets up with Joshua. Joshua doesn't really know what's going on. He hears all this commotion. He thinks it's the sound of war. Of course, Moses knows what's happening because God told him that people have corrupted themselves. Uh, God uh, told Moses, no, it's not the sound of war. It's the noise of drunken, sinful partying is what it is. Verse 18, But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and dancing. People dancing around this calf. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of of the mountain. Earlier in Exodus 19 verse 8, when God had first proposed to them this covenant, the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, that we will do. Forty days later, it didn't work out quite that way. Uh, Moses hadn't even, hadn't even gotten down from the mount with God's laws in his hands, that the people had already broken them. And so as a visible powerful illustration of that very thing moses takes the tablets throws them down and breaks them at the foot of sinai because the people had already broken it it was a very visible illustration of that uh, incredible uh, unfaithfulness you know oh god yes we want to be your people oh yes lord whatever you say we're going to obey moses gone 40 days 40 nights where do the people are into false worship all right worship be god in a wrong way, uh, and lewdly on top of it. Verse 20, Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. If you can drink your God, you have the wrong God. And unfortunately, a lot of people in our culture drink their God on a regular basis. And uh, it's not good. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods or make us a God that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and poof, this calf came out. (laughs) Now, folks, that's got to rank right up there, the top ten lamest excuses ever given. And remember, this is Aaron the high priest. Aaron wasn't a strong leader, obviously. He was a man pleaser. Listen to what he says here. You know, don't get so upset, Mo. You know, the, the, these people, you know they're evil. So I just accommodated them because they're evil, all right? I mean, he excused himself and blamed the people for forcing him to make this golden calf. And, he, and again, the explanation of how this golden calf came about was the lamest part of all. 
Okay. Tell me what happened there. Well, it's the darndest thing. You know, the people wanted a, wanted a god. You know, they're evil. So I thought, okay, I'll make them a god. Gave me their earrings, threw it into the fire. And, it's like magic, Mo. You should have seen it. This calf came right out. Now, look, you might be wondering why God didn't strike Aaron dead on the spot for making this golden calf. You read this and go, well, he's getting a pass. Why is God giving Aaron a pass here? Okay. But we read in Deuteronomy 9, the only reason God didn't kill Aaron because he wanted to was because Moses interceded for him that the Lord would not kill him. Deuteronomy 9, verse 20, and the Lord was very angry with Aaron. Moses is recounting this. And would have destroyed him, so I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Now again, I don't believe that God wanted to really kill Aaron, because if he did, he would have killed him. But again, he wanted Moses to be set in the place of an intercessor, because he's a type of Christ. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, is in heaven, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Exodus 32, 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Let me stop there. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, the word unrestrained is the same Hebrew word used in Proverbs 29, verse 18. Listen, I'll read it to you. Where there is no revelation, speaking of God's word, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law, the law of God. The idea that's being expressed in Exodus 22, verse 25, is that God's people had cast off all restraint with regard to his law and were now acting completely lawlessly. And in this context, with sexual immorality is the idea. There is no greater danger than for people to cast off all restraint, everything God has said, and do whatever seems right in their own eyes. We've talked about this many times. Some of the darkest days in Israel history, in Israel's history, was the period of the judges, a very black period. A time characterized by the phrase, everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. They had cast off God's laws and were basically doing whatever they thought was right. And the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? If we look within to find out what's right, we're always going to come away doing the wrong thing. I know God said it's living with my boyfriend or my girlfriend is wrong. But, you know, I just don't feel it's wrong. We have so much love for each other, you know. I know God's word says that homosexuality is a sin. But I just can't really, I don't feel it's a sin. When I see two people who love each other, uh, married and so on, see, we as a culture are doing the very same thing Israel did. And I know it's not just me. I know you see it. I don't watch any sitcoms. I mean, everything that comes out every fall is, is worse and worse than the year before. But the commercials are defiling, aren't they? Just the commercials speak to how degenerate our culture has become. And it's because we have cast off, we're unrestrained. We're unrestrained as a people. And um, as such, we're living very immoral lives. Uh, Americans are living, for the most part, very immoral lives, doing whatever they feel like doing. Uh, even though God has forbidden it, they don't care. If it feels good, they're going to do it. And the only hope for America is that we repent as a nation because we're moving towards judgment because God will not allow us to continue flaunting our sin in the face of a holy God without him at one point, his mercy and grace coming to an end, his long-suffering and patience waiting for us to repent, and then him bringing judgment. That's coming if we don't repent. Uh, the phrase, for Aaron had not restrained the people to their shame among their enemies, is interesting. It carries the idea that as the high priest of the nation, 
it was Aaron's responsibility more than probably anybody else to uphold God's laws and demand that the people obey them. Again, he offers no resistance at all. What kind of a leader is this? He doesn't try to persuade them. He doesn't try to convince them to the contrary. Here's what they want to do. And boy, he's just all too willing to... I guess Aaron was the quintessential man-pleaser. He wanted people to like him, apparently. There's a lot of pastors today in the church who are men-pleasers. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, this would characterize the church in the last days, that people would not want to hear sound doctrine. Uh, they would want their ears tickled. They would want to be told what they want to hear. And so they would gather to themselves teachers, pastors, who are nothing more than man-pleasers, who would tell them what they want to hear. Aaron didn't seek to be a God-honorer a strong leader, he sought instead to be a man-pleaser. And Remember what Paul said in Galatians 1 about those who would seek to please men? Paul said, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. As a leader, you have to decide, you know, who you're going to serve, who you're going to be loyal to, you know. If, if you're looking to be liked and popular, Ministry is probably not the thing you should be doing. I mean, you can do it where you are liked and popular if you just tell people what they want to hear, but you won't please God, and so on. I'll tell you this, guys, and we see it today. It's amazing. When Christian leaders are men-pleasers, which means they're soft on sin, well, the whole church gets soft on sin and unrestrained. And you know what? When that happens, it's very shameful because it gives the enemies of God a field day to mock and ridicule our God. That's what is going on here. For Aaron had not restrained the people to their shame among their enemies. These were God's people. And the enemies of God at least realized they were different. They were had been set apart. And here they're acting as bad as any pagan culture in the area. Whenever we are not walking in holiness but we're emulating the world, the world's attitudes, the world's actions, you know? When professing Christians are living with each other out of wedlock or, you know, uh, lying about the products they're selling or involved in a business that is not upright and the world sees it, it's a shame because they can mock us then. And ultimately, they're mocking God because the devil uses it to, to say to these people, look, see, the Christian over here, see, they're not living for God. They're a hypocrite. You don't want to become like one of them, do you? And he's convincing people not to become Christians because of the way we live. Remember what um, Nathan, when he confronted David about his sin, we'll get to this in a few weeks, Second Samuel, this comes out of chapter 12, when he sinned with Bathsheba, right? For a man after God's heart. That was no doubt the blackest moment in David's history, his life where he goes and he has an affair with another man's wife, a man who was one of his soldiers, and then to cover it, has him murdered. I mean, you can't get much more overtly sinful than that, right? And he tried to keep it quiet for a while, about maybe a year, until finally God sent Nathan to David to confront him. Nathan was a prophet. After Nathan confronts David, he comforts him with these words, 2 Samuel 12, 14, uh, he says in verse 13, David, God is not going to kill you. You're deserving of death for what you did. But he's merciful. He's not going to take your life. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's what happens, you know. When we don't live the kind of life that we claim we believe in. It gives the enemies of the Lord great occasion to blaspheme. Exodus 32, verse 26. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Now, of course, there were others, but it wants us to know that all the sons of Levi gathered to the Lord. Verse 27, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. He's talking to the Levites now. 
Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, that would be uh, his wife, every man his neighbor, whoever was involved in this idolatry, okay, uh, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell or were killed that day. Here's a few things you need to understand. Yes, God judged sin here pretty severely, but I want you to know, he did give the people a chance to repent first, didn't he? Before he brought judgment. Our God is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God did act very severely towards these people. But he first gave everyone a chance to repent. Whoever is really for the Lord, that, that was what it is, okay? You know, this proved many of them were not really of God. They were not really committed to him. They, they mouthed the words, oh yeah, we'll obey. But this obviously proved where they were coming from. So when Moses said, look, anybody who is really for the Lord... You come over here by me. And a whole bunch did, no doubt, plus the Levites. But 3,000 did not. 3,000, wow. And so God judged them. He had the Levites kill them. The passage teaches us, among other things, that we're either for the Lord or against the Lord. There's no middle ground. Jesus said that, you either for me or against me. And I want you to notice that our loyalty to him supersedes our loyalty to our physical family, to our spouses, to our family in Christ. If anyone is doing anything that is against God, we are not to side with them. We are not to be sympathetic. To what we can love them and pray for them. We can confront them, but we don't have fellowship with them. We don't make them feel good about what they're doing. See, I really see this uh, a principle, and God is beginning to lay down now these teachings. And he's using the people's own rebellion and shortcomings to teach them these lessons. And one of the lessons is, look, I'm a gracious and merciful God. If you mess up and you repent, I will, I will forgive if you think you can follow me and live in consistent unrepentant sin, I will judge you. And if you're going to follow me, I have to be supreme. Your loyalty to me has to, has to supersede your loyalty to everybody else. Your physical family, your earthly family, your marital partner, uh, you know, uh, your church family, your pastor. I don't care who it is. If a man is not following Jesus, I don't care if he's a pastor, elder, whatever he might be, then you are not to be loyal to that man. You are to follow Christ. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? I mean, we can look at this and see how God dealt with sin in the camp of Israel back then and see how most leaders deal with sin in the church today, and there's a real problem. Not that I'm saying we should kill those who are living in sin. But how about remove them from the fellowship if they're not willing to repent? I mean, loving discipline, you know, tough love, as they say, is not a bad thing. I, in, in the handful of times we've had to disfellowship somebody over the years because they were not willing to repent of a situation that was obviously sinful, you would be shocked to find how many people took their side against the leadership. Like we were acting, and they basically said that to us. You know what? How is this God's love? You kick them out of the church. How is that God's love? I love all of God's people. If you have one person who is living in sin and won't repent, what about the others who want to walk with God that Paul says this person if left in the body will be like leaven and the, the sin will spread, corrupting all kinds of people. Look, we're not kicking them out of the church. We're disfellowshipping them for a time in the hopes that they'll repent and then they can come back. It's all about restoring them, not doing away with them. But you have a lot of churches that won't even do that today. Why? It's too negative. 
we want to keep things positive and upbeat besides some of our biggest tithers are living together with you know i've heard this from people who have come and said you never guess what's going on in my church we've got several elders having affairs but nobody does anything about it because you know they're the biggest givers in the church many of them and so on sad very sad now we read here that that day 3,000 men of the people uh, died when the law was given all right Moses came down from the mount carrying the you know the law but the Ten Commandments primarily people had broken the commandments he throws them down, smashes them at the base of Mount Sinai, and then 3,000 go on to be judged and die. Paul had that in mind, and also how that on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, Acts 2, and the Spirit was poured out, 3,000, it says, were saved. And he says, he picks up on that in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He said, "...who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant." not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, can I warn you how some people interpret that, and it's wrong? You have ultra-Pentecostals who read that and go, okay, uh, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. The letter is the Bible. If you just teach the Bible, you'll kill people. You gotta have the moving of the spirit and all that. That's what brings life. No. He's talking about the letter of the law. The law kills, but the spirit brings life. That's the new covenant, right? We are not bound to keep laws to earn salvation. We can't do it. Therefore, the law kills. But if we come to Christ by faith and receive him as Lord and Savior, the Spirit is poured upon our lives, and we have everlasting life right the spirit through christ gives life the law could never impart life it could only condemn right verse 29 then moses said consecrate yourselves today to the lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man is opposed his son and his brother wow can you imagine that how hard that would be to kill your son your flesh and blood brother maybe your wife as a levite was involved in some of this idolatry and you had to take a sword and to kill her hard for us to imagine you know doing something like that and god was demanding from his people absolute loyalty and now he says look you know i want to bless you today every man has opposed his son and his brother now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins, or for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. He acknowledged, he isn't even trying to make excuses for them anymore. All right? He, he just acknowledged, Okay, Lord, you're right. They're sinful. They're, they're wicked. All right? Uh, these people have committed a great sin. And have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Guys, Moses is expressing a love for these people that can only have been put in his heart by God himself. It's a love that we call from the New Testament, agape love. Agape love is God's love. It's not in us. Agape love is not in us. We can't manufacture it. Uh, it's just not there. It has to be poured into us. And Romans 5 verse 5 says that God poured it into us through the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ. Now we have God's love in us. We don't always have to use it though. We can still, you know, not forgive. We can still hold grudges. But we have the capacity now to love as God loves. And I think the more we draw close to him, the more that love will come through us, okay? But um, agape love, obviously God had given Moses a special love. Now, that doesn't mean he never got aggravated with these people, okay? Because God gives you agape love for somebody, it doesn't mean they never aggravate you. And these people are going to test him, his patience, quite a bit, all right? 
But I see the same lo- kind of love in Paul for his people. Remember what he said in Romans 9, verse 3? He said, for I could wish, not possible, I wish it was possible, that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Not saying quite a bit. Paul's saying, if it were possible, I would choose to go to hell if all of Israel could be saved. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have that kind of love. I, I don't have it. Maybe God will give it to me down the road for, for some people. I don't know. But the idea of me going to hell forever, that some rebel might go to heaven? First of all, heaven's big enough for all of us, right? We don't have to, you know, it's not either or, it's both and. Let's all go, all right? Okay, that's where I'm coming from. Um, all right, verse 32. Yet now, he said, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Now, many believe the book Moses has in mind here is the book of life. The book of life, which has the names of everybody who will live for eternity in heaven. It's mentioned in Revelation chapters 20 and 21, uh, verse 15 of chapter 20, and uh, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 21 verse 27, but there shall be uh, by no means enter into the new city, New Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So some people say that's what Moses has in mind here, this book of life that has the names of all the redeemed who will be living for eternity in heaven. It could be. Uh, Others believe that the book Moses was referring to was the one that David made mention of in Psalm 69, verse 28, when David said, and I quote, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Not the book of life, but the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. And this, they believe, many believe, is a reference to the census book that contained all who were living in Israel as this covenant people. So every once in a while, they took a census, and they wrote down everybody who was alive there in Israel, living under the covenant of God, and so on. And uh, many believe that, well, that's what Moses is referring to. And if it's true, what Moses is really saying then is that God... Look, these people are sinful, and, I, and I, I'm praying that you will forgive them in spite of them. They don't deserve forgiveness, but Lord, I'm praying that you would forgive them anyways. But if you're determined to wipe these people out and take them off the earth, then let me die a premature death as well, because I can't live without my people. All right? It's not that he's saying necessarily, uh, I, I'll go to hell for all eternity for them. He's just saying, Lord, if you're going to kill them and take them off the earth because you just can't forgive them take me off the earth as well that could be what is going on there i'll let you decide what you think all right verse 33 and the lord said to moses whoever has sinned against me i will blot him out of my book moses you know don't tell me who to blot out of my book all right i mean you know i'm not gonna blot the righteous out of my book only the unrighteous in fact ezekiel 18 verse 20 Uh, God said, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteous uh, of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So it kind of sounds like that's what's going on here. That, that, you know, this is something God was saying that Moses, look, uh, in this life, the land of the living, I have a book of the living, and those who sin against me, I'm going to judge, remove them from this earth. But those who obey me, I will bless. And by the way, guys, there's only one man that God allowed to die for the sins of others. Jesus Christ. Moses couldn't die for the sins of his people, even though he loved them with all his heart. Because he also was a sinner, and sinners cannot die for sinners. Only the sinless, spotless Lamb of God could die for the sins of mankind. Okay, let's finish up verse 34. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Now, that's a reference, I believe, to Jesus, who would be going before the people. Called here an angel. He's not an angel as a created being, of course. Uh, The word is messenger. Jesus Christ would go before his people as a messenger. Um, Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. 
So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Now we're not told exactly how he plagued them. Uh, some people believe, well, it was just talking about ultimately how he had them all die in the wilderness, all these adults, before he led them to the promised land. Could be, uh, not that it's a very important point, but I was thinking about this afternoon, and I remembered what God had told them, how he had promised them back in Exodus 15, verse 26. He said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God. Now he's talking to his people now about entering into a covenant. And if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God is promising them, look, if you will obey me, I will protect you from the diseases and the plagues that I brought upon the Egyptians. It could be, though, because they had disobeyed God, he was now beginning to remove his hand of protection so that they were plagued by various diseases that he would have protected them from had they walked in total obedience. Again, bottom line, obeying God is always better than disobeying. Always, okay? He's merciful and gracious, but why suffer the consequences when he wants to bless you abundantly if you disobey him? Amen? We will continue, God willing, next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we study Israel and how they lived for you, or in many cases did not live for you, how you treated them, the things you spoke to them, Lord, are great lessons for us to learn. Father, these things were written in the Old Testament for our learning. It's a wise man or woman who learns from the mistakes of others that they don't have to or we don't have to make those same mistakes ourselves to learn those lessons. So, Lord, give us grace. Bottom line, biggest lesson tonight, if we obey you, we'll be blessed. And we should want to obey you because we love you and because we want your perfect will for our lives. And we want our lives to be a constant source of glory to you and for you. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, and ask you to give us grace. That we don't strive against our maker. That we don't fight or wrestle against you like Jacob did. But that we submit. We bow the knee. We say, here I am, Lord. Whatever your, your will is for your servant's life, that I will do joyfully. Give us grace to do that, Lord, to have that attitude. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.